I'm Tim Burrows. Late last year, Unmade hit the road. We invited our members to join us for Compass, a night of reflections and projections on the year just gone and the year to come. Our partner for Compass was Circuit by Cash Rewards. Here's what went down when we came to the Art House Hotel in Sydney. Let me tell you about our brilliant panel, starting at the far end for me. Henry Innes is the co-founder and CEO of one of the most exciting startups in our industry space that I've seen. If a five-year-old company still counts as a startup, that is. Mutinex is, as I think most people in this room would know, changing how the marketing world thinks about media mix modelling. Uh, in its latest valuation, Mutinex hit $75 million. And I think there's plenty more to come from there. Now, Henry came up through the media and agency world, including at Hearst Magazines in the UK, and then for WPP agencies, including AKQA and what was then YNR. VML Wayana. I, 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 I struggle to keep up, as I think all of us do. Our next panellist has lots in common with Henry, uh, including being both a leader and a strategist through and through. Lauren Joyce is Chief Strategy and Connections Officer at Australian Radio Network. Now, ARN Media has been kind of in the news recently. Uh, Lauren has been with ARN for nearly five years now, and during that time, I think it coincided with the point at which we stopped talking about the radio industry and started talking about the audio industry. And previous Lauren led strategy and marketing for Mamma Mia um, after coming into media via the agency world of Ensemble, UM, Total Advertising and the legendary Bellamy Hayden. So lots of interesting agencies there. Next along, Leah Jackson, who is head of digital marketing at Goodman Fielder. Now, I must admit, Leah only came on my radar back in October, and it was genuine word of mouth. I was in the coffee break, our remade retail media conference, and I kept hearing people saying, who's that person who keeps asking the really good questions from the audience? So um, I'm not sure I've ever actually heard that vibe about audience questions before, although obviously feel free to r rise to that challenge a little bit later. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, 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 it really became uh, obvious that we should be asking Leah to be on stage. So Leah's been at Goodman Fielder for nearly four years now. And prior to that, she was in marketing roles at Dyson, Foxtel and Pernod Ricard. And then your fourth panellist is Simone Gupta. Now, I've known Sim for most of the 15 years that she's been around Australia. Um, and she achieved what might be unique. She came into a big creative agency group, which was DDB, and created a successful sister PR agency at scale in Mango. Um, she went on to become a board director of DDB. And it was during that period that the strategic importance of the PR discipline began to be more widely acknowledged in the wider communications landscape here in Australia. And I, you know, I, I would say that Simone did more than most to make that happen, and that included helping to found the PR Council of Australia, um, uh, where um, she was the, uh, I think, the first deputy chair of that organisation, if, if I remember correctly. Um, and then she uh, later returned to uh, Australia after a brief, brief trip back to the UK, or a few years in the UK, as boss of Havas Group's One Green Bean. 
And in June, Sim broke cover with her latest project, the creative and earned media agency, Supermassive. So please welcome our excellent panel. And let's get into it. And I kind of, we, I think sometimes I make my colleagues, which includes Belinda, our chief of staff, and Kat, who leads our curation. Um, also, hello to, uh, to Doug, who leads our sales, and Sedja, who does the writing for us. But um, sometimes I think I make my colleagues tear their hair out because um, Kat very carefully helped curate, and they're looking, wondering where I'm going with this. Kat, Kat very helped cura helpfully helped us to curate this wonderful panel and worked with us on the questions. And I wandered in this afternoon saying, I thought of a completely new way to open it up. Um, so our panel hasn't had more than a couple of minutes notice on this one, which was, um, I was saying to them, I was, I, I was on a trip back to the UK um, uh, last week and I went to a kind of sort of dinner party with a dozen people who work in the communications and advertising industry. It was kind of, you know, in a, in a room, in a restaurant. And it felt like the sort of conversation where you're really hearing about what's happening and the sort of conversation that doesn't happen on stage. So I kind of thought I'd start there. And um, I'll start at this end. So, Sim, I'm going to ask you first. Um, what are the conversations about the industry that need to be had that aren't being had on stage, usually? Yeah, I'm being very, very honest, because it wasn't in my carefully curated key messages. Um, I think the conversations that I'm hearing that are not talked about in, in more public forums is around how people in the industry are very rarely protected from bullying and harassment and that businesses continue to protect quite often senior people who are the causes of that. And I think it gets talked about a lot, but not much is done. That's a good answer. Now, before we move on to another topic, let me ask if anyone else on the panel wants to react to that particular point. Um, I think that there is generational change that comes with that and that the younger generations that are coming through because the subject matter of, you know, mental health or bullying and um, harassment to an extent is natural in their, their peer group. I feel like they are much more open to talking about it. And I think that you're right, we're, you know, on the cusp of uh, things changing because of the, the new laws that are coming in around workplace bullying and um, and the, the protection that we need to put in place for people and their mental well-being. I think that businesses who aren't openly talking about that type of thing are going to find themselves having some pretty tricky conversations over the coming 12 months and then beyond that because um, that they will be forced to, to kind of be a lot more open about how they're managing those, those issues in their business. I'm sorry, but, like, what's the trade media for? Like, should the trade media not be picking up these issues? Like... Seriously, like, like, how can we have a bunch of tra trade media publications when this is so widely known, but no one can pick up and fucking report on it? It's a joke. I'm sorry, like, well, like, like, but de defamation only, only implies, like, defense of truth is, like, a very valid thing, right? I mean, sure, sure, but, like, I, I don't know. I, I, I find, like, the whole collective silence because of, the, like, 
it is a large company really going to sue a publication for that type of stuff and get like hammered in the in the press? I I, I don't know. I think the trade 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 media needs to be doing a better job at standing up for this stuff. I really do. And like like the companies are not going to act against their own interests. I think that is the job of a strong media. If we need to reform defamation laws, let's do that. But like it doesn't make sense to me that we're not having the conversation about like getting our trade media and a strong fourth estate to do that. Hey, look, it's not my job to defend the whole trade media, but as certainly as someone who's spent, you know, with one particular case, a lot of time dealing with lawyers for something which proved to be true, um, there, you know, I can certainly argue that there, there are barriers. And I suppose the other point I make is we saw recently nine spend a number of years and I saw a reported number of five million proving what a, and I'm choosing my words carefully, what a judge fans to be the truth of their allegations about Ben Robert Smith. Um, but that cost them maybe five million and that was at risk. And that, that I think is the problem for the trade media is they do not have a five million dollar budget. And I can certainly say my, my, my experience, and this is one of the barriers, and so I didn't really mean this to, I didn't mean to be a fifth panellist. Um, but, um, but yeah, but, but, but certainly one of the issues is, yes, you have defamation insurance, and quite early in the process, as soon as there's an offer to settle, your insurer will inform you that, well, if you can settle or you can continue on at your own risk, and that often is what kills things off. Um, so, um, but yeah, excellent points. Did anyone else want to come in on the, the, the question of bullying? <laughs> okay, well, look, I, uh, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll carry along. We won't, we won't play tennis all night going back and forth along the panel, but I will go, go for this question next to Leo. And I, and I make the point, don't, you know, the, the whole point of this format is it's kind of laid back as well. So don't feel obliged that every single point you make needs to be the serious but um leah what what do you think is going on in the industry uh, which people aren't talking about on stage usually um certainly not a serious answer but i don't think people are talking about what christmas parties they're going to in the next couple of weeks um it's been a really hectic year for anyone who works in cpg brands um, maybe any brands, you guys would know that the inflationary environment of which we're trading in is super, super challenging. It's been a very full-on year of looking at share, looking at operational logistics, costs, COGS costs, etc. especially for our business, we're a commodities-based business. Um, and so I'm just desperate for a break. I'm just desperate to celebrate with my agency partners, our commercial partners, and, you know, just applaud dealing with a few years of COVID, and I reckon this year's been even harder. Yeah. A Christmas party is related to harassment. God, that is like a can of worms that could just be opened right up. That is a can of worms. Um, let me come next to you, Lauren. Yeah. Same question to you. Um, I think that there is a layer of fear in the industry at the moment, particularly amongst the publicly listed companies. I think if you look at the results that have been, you know, released over the last three months or so, most publicly listed companies have announced some sort of cost-out program. And I think that, um, yeah, that, 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 that 
creates fear amongst the people employed in the industry because it means that it's not just one business that is running a cost out and then there'll be jobs at another company, but, you know, it's, it's um, industry-wide. So where do all the people go? And I think if you ask that question further, I, I question, well, what value are we as a society putting on the role of main media? Because we need to find a way to help our media companies... Um, you know, make a profit so that we can have informed, well-researched voices and opinions out there that help to, you know, put pressure on the other estates of power to, to make societal change. So, you know, not to try and bring things down, but I do think there's a layer of fear there within the industry. Sim, it strikes me that one of the worst things about being part of a big organisation is having last year's numbers to beat. So it must be quite nice being new and independent and just not, you know, just, 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 just having growth to go for rather than a previous number. I'm not going to lie. It's amazing. Um, and, you know, that wasn't sort of... It's an interesting year for us, 2023, because for the first half of the year, we weren't actively working, well, John was, but we weren't actively working in an agency because we were on our gardening period and we were quietly, legally you know, beavering away, setting up Supermassive. So those first six months of the year, we weren't feeling the pressures that a lot of businesses were feeling. And then the last six months of the year, we launched in, in June. We've just had a lot of green lights, but we don't have those same pressures. We, you know, we are, we're in startup mode. And some people could say it's an interesting year to launch a startup when the with inflation and the economy and uncertainty... Um, but what we've found for our offering is that it's working and we haven't got a whole heap of financial pressures. So the risk is much less. Henry, what, what? I think there are two things that I hear a lot about. Um, the first is over the last kind of few years with the war for talent, you've seen a hell of a lot of like obviously increase to staff cost. And I think that's no secret to anybody. If you look at the kind of most list, mostly listed companies at the moment, the key thing that's crushing them is uh, is staff staff to revenue ratio cost. And so, what's kind of happening as the interest rates rise is that's crippling the ability, the margins of these companies that they used to have. And so, I think a lot of people are trying to reset quietly their salary banding at large publicly listed companies. No one's really talking about that, but most companies are intentionally trying to move people or effectively demote large portions of people because they've had to promote a lot of people very quickly to retain talent. So I don't think anyone's talking about, you know, the mass demotion and salary freezes that is effectively happening at publicly listed companies. I think the second probably very ugly truth the advertising industry needs to confront today is do the capabilities of our creative agencies actually match the media inventory available? Um, because if you look at most large creative agencies, they fundamentally are built around producing 30 to 60 second ads and that's how they monetize. Now, I know everybody says the ideas are creative. When I was in a big agency, I very rarely saw an idea not presented as a 30 second film script. And I think everybody kind of knows that to be true. Um, so with that in mind, you know, with the media inventory that's available, with the, you know, the demise effectively of the 30 second and 60 second ad inventory, does the capability en masse of our industry structurally match the media inventory available to reach and influence people? I'd say no. And that's probably the most severe skills mismatch that we have seen in an industry for quite some time. 
Leah, you're nodding at that. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that. Um, these are conversations we faced into with our agency partners a couple of years ago. Um, you know, as a business with a suite of products that's based what you can find in the grocery on a shelf, obviously through COVID we saw transitions online and therefore our spend reflected that in terms of our channel selections from a media point of view. And with that came a much more considered approach to how we show up creatively. And so we actually faced into a number of these conversations with our agencies very early. We obviously then transitioned to how we buy and trade our media differently, which no doubt we will get to. Um, and so that, again, has also forced our agencies in a positive way to reconsider how, how they do work for us and with us. Um, but I think clients have a responsibility on this as well. Like I think, you know, to understand that agencies still also have to pay their own, you know, like head hours and agent, like talent fees, etc. It's our job as clients to be facing into that with our agencies and to setting the framework of what we're going to spend for a period of time so that they can also cash flow appropriately. Sam, I'm sure you have plenty to say about the shape of creative agencies. Yeah, I mean, look, that was something that sort of drove us to where we are now because I was running essentially PR social businesses for Havas. Laura was running um, advertising retail. John was sort of sitting across the creative output of both of those. But essentially exactly ag agreeing with what you've both been saying around, well, not only is the inventory there, is that also we know that consumers have got more and more ways to screen out advertising. Um, and that, but what they are doing is spending still lots of time consuming content, but they are, their desire is not to consume advertising, it's to consume things that they love, music, connecting with the mates, gaming, all of those things. And so essentially, how do brands then, you know, our philosophy is how do brands, you know, meet the consumers where they are um, in an interesting way that can live outside a traditional media channel. It isn't to say that the advertising doesn't live in traditional media channels as well, but it has to work hard in other channels. Lauren, let me bring you in as well, because you've obviously got a couple of perspectives to bring on that. Yeah, I, I really agree with what you're saying. I think, you know, my philosophy with my team as well of clients I've had in the past has been you want to be the content that people choose to consume, whether that is between the, uh, the editorial content or yeah. is the editorial content itself. So I think the challenge that the industry faces and that creative agencies face is this, it, it comes back to resource as well. So... I think it's really easy to convey an idea in a 30-second ad to, you know, the client that you're presenting to. You know, there's no faster way to, to communicate to them, here's the idea I want you to buy into, than saying here's what it would look like because that's, um, I guess, that, that that is the currency that marketers are familiar with. However, I think the ideal way of approaching it would be to go channel by channel and actually speak to, you know, the, the consumers of that channel and go, okay, well, what is it about this channel that makes you engage and then how do we design content that fits within that channel? It's resource that stops you from doing that. Leah? I just want to say I think it's a fallacy that um, marketers are trained to understand creative in a 30-second. I think it's a rarity for many marketers these days to even have the luxury of creating a 30-second spot, let alone a 60 there are very few brands that are doing that work well, I think, in this country. Um, and I think that 
lots of marketers coming through just from an age perspective aren't used to building 30s. They're used to looking at creative and how it shows up in different channels in different ways. So my challenge back to any of the agency folk in, you know, as part of this conversation is, you know, lean into your clients about what channels mean the most to them. Like I would prefer to see a creative idea show up in an aisle fin than I would in a 30 second because if you can translate a message in that media, then the 30 second is a given. Okay, another question for me, and this is for all of the panel. Um, tell me about one of the challenges you faced in 2023 and what you learned or what you've ended up doing differently as a result of overcoming that challenge. Um, Henry, you, you, I, I was trying to read your expression. It looked like maybe a light bulb was coming on. In a high-growth VC-backed startup, everything fucking breaks as you scale. <laughs> so literally everything. So um, I mean, we've gone for just for everybody's context from 12 people to 55 in less than 12 months. Um, there is literally like no amount of headspace that you can have to do. I think the key thing challenge that I've had is like moving from the role of like what I would call an IC, so like an individual contributor, that's what we kind of call them, versus like a manager. An IC reacts to tasks, managers react to numbers. And so increasingly I've had to learn to what I call manage numerically. Um, don't speak at all in terms of, you know, tasks or anecdotes and things like that. Everything is KPI down to a number. Every person is KPI down to a number daily. Um, and so that's the kind of like systems that we've had to build. I think like for us, managing that was really important because when we were stuffing that up, we weren't able to raise capital. Um, and as a startup and in a VC-backed environment where obviously the markets are very constrained at the moment, um, actually like being dependent on, you know, growth through VC means you have to thread the needle very, very correctly. Uh, let me come maybe next to you, Leah, if I can. Your your biggest challenge and what you've learned from navigating it. So I think a challenge is always an opportunity. It's how you frame it up. Um, we shifted our way of working at the beginning of this year um, for our food service business to sit in the marketing function, um, which for someone like myself who has spent 20 years working in agency, 10 years or so working in in client-side marketing, I'm like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to market a prison to a cafe. Like, those things are wide and varied. Um, I think um, what has helped us to create method from the madness is shifting the frame from the fact that we are a marketing team to a demand function and actually looking at what we bring to the business as a commercial part of the business as opposed to us necessarily just being a marketing function that, you know, creates beautiful pictures and artwork. So... Um, you know, that has been um, shaped up in the way of, um, you know, reconciling audiences and reconciling the total market into addressable audiences, um, creating bespoke communication strategies in and around those audiences to shop in different ways, understanding the commodities environment of which we trade in and how that then impacts our commercial assets. You know, those type of things I think many marketers probably aren't discussing in on the given, especially not someone who works in digi marketing, like you know, my day can be taken up with signing off on TikToks and then talking about oil, like those things. I think you know it's been a huge challenge, but it's been the most incredible learning shift as well. Um, and I feel super blessed that I've been given that opportunity. Lauren, do you want to talk to challenges? 
yeah, I think our challenge is in my role, we have a similar sort of function in that we've got um, three clients really, so or, or three customers that we're speaking to. So we've got the audience in terms of the, the radio and the podcast listeners. We've got our clients, so where our revenue comes from, which are the advertisers, and then we've got our people. Um, and we're always looking for that three-way win in how we can um, connect audiences to our brands and, and brands to our, um, our clients. So I think the challenge for us has been the short-termism of our clients and them not being able to be as planned and as sure around their level of spend because that then has an impact and a flow-through on the amount that we can spend on producing our content and on producing you know, the marketing and the, the um, connections that we want to deliver for our audiences. Um, and I think that that's, uh, you know, coming at us in two ways. So certainly, you know, from, from people like Goodman Fielder and, um, and their marketing budgets and the, the lack of certainty there, but um, also our audiences and the pressures that are on them in terms of cost of living because they turn to mediums like radio to you know, to supplement their incomes. You know, they're trying to have that light-hearted entertainment and win something while you're at it. So, you know, it, it kind of, it changes your approach to producing content to be less about winning, you know, huge holidays and more about paying your bills um, because we know that that's what's really important to our audiences right hey, that's now. That's good. And I've not forgotten, I've not come to you yet, Sim, on your challenge, but I do want to build on that point around cost of living. Um, are we, oh, no, none of us, own crystal walls, but does it feel like we're through the worst? How has it affected how you've been doing business? Um, Henry, I'm imagining you know something about econometrics. Uh, well, I think it depends on which way you cut it. Like, obviously, there's a portion of inflation that's driven by geopolitics, there's a portion of inflation that's driven by salary inflation, effectively paying down COVID. Um, I think the biggest risk to the Australian market right now is the housing market. Like, as the interest rates ramp up so quickly, it's virtually impossible for people to recalibrate their budgets. If you look at what the RBA has said recently, 52% of households are in negative income at the moment, which is, like, extremely high and higher than subprime was. So that's a very clear existential risk. If the housing market collapses, a lot of Australia's wealth collapses. I think that the best thing, and, you know, I am going to just, like, talk politics for two seconds because I think most politicians are horribly unnuanced and... I think the best thing politicians could do is actually start to reform the tax system. So increasing GST to reduce consumption, reducing lower income tax, and actually starting to also remove negative gearing, which I know is a very unpopular topic, but I think it's like definitely I, an important... I topic. was just looking to the back of the room because I know that Adam Lang from Fear and Greed is here, and he, if ever you listen to the Fear and Greed podcast, they're always talking about reforming the tax system. So you'll have got a big tick from Adam on, uh, on, on, on that one. I'm, Leah, how is, how is cost of living affecting your stakeholders? God, you're my stakeholders. I'm my stakeholder. You know, we all walk down the aisle or buy online our groceries and you guys know you're checking out and it seems more expensive. It is more expensive. I think, you know, we've felt that as a supplier, as a manufacturer. I know that some of my commercial partners are in the room. They also feel it. There's certainly no want and desire to pass on some of those costs to consumers. It's just we're not in the business for that. I think... One thing that many people don't know about the way that we see the world is it's about re-establishing what value means to consumers. So one thing that we, 
categorically won't do is go backwards in terms of nutritional credential in our products. So, you know, we actually take the hit on some of that by not just doing things cheaper because it means more profitability. Like it's actually, you know, an ingrained part of how we do business. And so that's proved challenging, but also holding true on the ethics of the way you do business and making sure that you're putting consumers at the heart of the decisions that you make, I think is something that's really undervalued and it's it's really important to us. And I think that that's what will help carry our brands and our business forward, you know, while we're really all feeling the pinch. Sim, I'll come to you now. It's cost of living. And, and I guess sort of I find myself thinking about consumer confidence. Um, Steve Allen is here and I was chatting to Steve just before we came on about and talking about the new Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index, which has just come out this afternoon. And Steve, I think you said it was down three percentage points since... 3.4 percentage points, thank you, <laughs> since, the, um, since, since the last rate rise. How are you thinking about consumers and I th confidence? I think that... Um Going back to your original question was, do we think that we're through the worst of it? It doesn't feel like it. I mean, I agree with what Henry said. You know, there's still a lot that can happen to the economy that's not even within, you know, the politicians are not going to do a tax reform in the next six months and the geopolitics will continue as they always do. And, and consumer confidence through that and people just haven't got enough money because their mortgages are going up and, and they, cost of living is going up. So I don't think we're through the worst of it. Um, there's, there is always the Australia kind of swerves how deep recessions and these kind of issues can go compared to the rest of the world. Um, with regards to how it impacts consumers, you know, we're, it's interesting. We're working at the moment um, for P&O Cruises who are repositioning their brand and talking about value and what it means and talking about what their consumer looks like and their future consumer if they're going to grow their category and so when you put that up against you know the challenges that families are facing when they're booking holidays for example you know it is a real factor to consider as we're positioning who a brand selling their products to now and in the near future. Leah, are you trying to come yeah, back I in just on wanted that? To, I think that is such an important point because I think the last time that we went through something like this was circa 2007, 2008, and we had a very different um, cultural face to our country. And I think, you know, it's easy in these times to default to what you know and you go back to, oh, we went through this, you know, 20 whatever years ago, less than 20 years ago. And so let's go back to the whole notion that people are cocooning, they're spending differently, but actually – our country and the cultural makeup of our country has never been more different. And so the plans that you put in place to your point around repositioning and what value means, et cetera, are completely different now to what we might have had when we went through kind of the back of the JFC. And I think that's really under-considered by lots of people in marketing, advertising. Now, Lauren, I know it was you who made the point in the first place, but did, did you want to build up on, on this at all? I, I want to build on what Leah just said around uh, the makeup of our country. I mean, we have a, a, our assets go across metro and regional Australia and we see a real difference in the way regional Australia are affected by the cost of living to metro Australia. I think that um, there is more of a... It's not to say that they're not impacted, but I think that there is a more pragmatic lens through which they, um, I guess, take on negative news about the cost of living because the demand to spend in regional areas is lower. 
Um, and I think that there's, you know, most of the people who have migrated from metro to regional areas have done so making a concerted effort for a different lifestyle. So the choices they're making are somewhat more considered and they're not feeling the impact of that discretionary spend that um, is you know, readily available in metro areas. In this regional. message brought to you by Boomtown. <laughs> I don't work for Boomtown, but yes. I, and, and disclosure, I do live in a regional area. So, you know, per, first-hand experience. <laughs> hey, I'm going to ask um, Simone to come, come back on the same point around challenge and then we'll invite the first question from the audience. Um, Sim, the challenge you faced this year. Um, so some of, a couple of the challenges that we've sort of faced we turn into the opportunity, I think. Um, one of them is that the cost of salaries and the talent shortage last year had really impacted all businesses, um, particularly agencies. And I think what that meant was that in some cases, it, is, it was and is impacting the quality of the output for the client because there are mouths to feed in a big agency and what we were hearing was that we are not getting depth of category expertise or discipline expertise on our business and we need it and we're getting senior people you know in this case like ourselves parachuted in at key moments or in crisis but we're not getting them in the room when we really need to help us solve these problems and clients like we're all in these problems together help us solve them so that has been part of our philosophy around there's loads of really great talent out there that don't sit in an agency environment and nobody expects everybody to be in the same room anymore. And so what we're trying to do, and look, we're small and we've got to scale this idea, but what we're trying to do is build expertise around a client problem while still having a permanent bench of client service people that are consistent but building really high and we're getting really high because the really high quality people are in two-man bands or they're in tiny little agencies or they're sitting in another country and so far it's worked and um but like i said we you know we're six months in but it is also ensuring that we're giving clients that kind of cash expertise they need and keeping the ongoing costs more manageable Okay, I'm going to go to Leah because I can see you're trying to come in and then, uh, I was just, I'll, then I'll come to the audience for the next question. I was just going to say, if you could bring back Mo and Joe, that'd be awesome. Like, I feel like we're all missing a jingle or some type of audio DBA. So bring those guys back and we'll, we'll be fine. Excellent. Well, let me invite a question and then I'll, I'll rather annoyingly for everyone in the room repeat it so that people on the podcast can hear it as well. Um, if you don't mind uh, raising a hand and asking a question, if anybody has one. Feel free to break the ice with the first question. Thank you very much. Steve Allen, thank you. Actually, I'm going to come to you. That'll be easier, won't it? Okay. Um, give, given, given that uh, we have, uh, if you take digital out, we have uh, retail sales forgetting the more recent inflation. We have retail sales growing really strongly, but we have ex-digital the media market's growing at half or less of that figure. How do we get advertisers to put more money in? What is the key to getting the advertising pie to grow? Give us better Good reporting. Question. Give us better reporting. 
demonstrate to us that every dollar we invest is driving and generating a return and you will get more money. Those are the conversations. The reality of, of our days is that we have these conversations every single day. I mean, especially if you work in a business like ours, high volume, low margin, every single dollar that we invest needs to drive and generate a return. And we're taught and we're encouraged to treat our dollars like they're our own. And you wouldn't really nearly just go and drop a million dollars in the street and be like, oh, I hope that just generates a return. Like you actually need to get that anecdotal evidence back to prove what you're actually doing is effective. And so the more robust the reporting, the more you know, closed loop end-to-end reporting that you can give us, the easier those conversations become to the guys that hold the purse strings. That's a good question. I just... I want to challenge you a little bit on that, that uh, the advertising market is declining because I, I agree with you, the reported amount is declining, but I think that we've got dollars escaping to places that are unregulated and that aren't measured. So if you look at the growth in the influencer market, like there's no regulated reporting around that. So, you know, a huge amount of the money that used to flow into TV, radio, press, wherever it was in all, all of the measured areas is now just unreported. So... I don't necessarily agree that advertising, well, that the challenge we need to solve is to get advertisers to spend more. I think it does come back to the reporting. It's how we measure it and it's how we get a true read on the amount of money that's out there so that then we can put a proper value on the media channels that we're trading in. I I disagree that the money has gone into those unregulated areas. We get a complete view of customer spend. We've got about you know, a bill and a half of spend, including the influencers and things like that. So we've got a pretty accurate view of like exactly where the dollars are going, whether it be pricing, promotions and all sorts of things. Um, so do you accept Steve's proposition that money is I, vanishing from the market then? It's not keeping fa- play, pace with inflation. I think that's, you know, pretty true. Um, and if something's not keeping pace with inflation, it's, it's by definition shrinking. I think the, the real problem with marketing as an industry is we don't actually understand how boards and businesses think. And so, you know, I've, as part of, you know, our, our journey at Mute Next, we've, we've got some like pretty serious board directors on our board. One of the things that you have to do and start to construct is like a use of funds, capital planning. Like this is exactly when we put this money in, this is what we expect to come back. Um, and that's stuff that gets signed off at a really high level. Now, when you go into some environments and, uh, and environments in marketing and you go, well, if we invest this money, how much are we going to back? And the answer is some growth. Like, that's, that's not an acceptable answer, particularly in a world where interest rates are rising. Like, I know I bang on about the economy all, all the bloody time, but, like, like, the thing is, is when interest rates rise, people take money seriously. And most businesses have a huge amount of debt on the balance sheets from COVID, which is basically forcing them to manage capital properly for the first time in probably five to six years. Well, look, um, I'm, I'm also conscious that, hey, look, you know, I had a really long list of questions. We're going to get through hardly any of them. And I'm conscious that people, a lot of people are standing. So we're not going to go as long as we usually would in this sort of thing. But I do want to just touch on something Henry just said, which is this question of COVID. The lingering effects. Are we done now? Is it over? Is it in the rearview mirror? Or, or are we still coping with some of the aftermath? I think we're coping with a lot of the psychological aftermath and I think that there's a lot of considerations that we need to make as employers around the um, the employees coming in, so the younger generations, and consider the fact that, you know, they went to uni and they didn't 
actually go to uni. They did it all online and without anybody else around. And then they come into the office and we ask them to come into the office, you know, however frequently it may be and be surrounded by people and network and be able to have conversations and emotionally invest themselves when they've spent all this time in isolation at home. So I think, you know, as far as our workforce is concerned, yes, we're still seeing the impact of COVID. Sorry, but, like, do you think young people, like, because we hire a lot of young people, right? Like, you know, we are a pretty young company. I would still count myself as young, but the hairline doesn't say that. But, um, but like, my experience with young people is young people want to be in the office, absolutely want to be in the office, and it's actually the slightly older generation, and I'm sorry to kind of, you know, make sweeping generalisations, but, you know, between 30 to 45 is typically the groups that want to be at home. Um, is that because they've got nice houses and the younger people have I, th- I think so. Like, I genuinely think so. When you don't have to worry about, like, air conditioning bills and things like that as well. Like, these are small things, but that, like, the younger generation thinks that. Like, my, most of my you – know, most of my friends, right, who are fairly early into their careers, most of them are in kind of, you know, their first, first job – first or second job. And most of them will say, well, I go into the office because I don't want to pay for air con all day at home. Like, that is literally what they say. And so I think there's this huge cognitive dissonance about work work from home that is being rationalised by middle managers who want to stay home and avoid work. Sim, you look like you were about to come in on that one. I I agree, actually. Funnily enough, we've been... When we were in our corporate, I was working from home a lot. Now I'm in the office every day. Um, but uh, I, I think we use the, the changes from the pandemic as an opportunity. I think that accessing good talent that don't have to be in the room is an opportunity. But I also think that we do have to get people back in the office and working together, particularly young people who are learning their craft. Pandemic. I've got nothing to add. Okay. Well, there are so many more questions we'd like to get to. So, um, let me invite another question from the floor if anybody has anything. Anyone want to come in? Otherwise, I've got I see a hand. My former colleague, Eleanor Dickinson, former Mumbrella colleague. Let me bring the microphone to you, Eleanor. Thanks, Tim. I'm a bit out the industry at the moment, but um, one thing I've observed as an outsider is the emergence of ads on over the top. Is that great for you guys, or is that kind of a slippery slope now for the the over-the-top as a platform? Thanks, Eleanor. Eleanor Uh, from the other ARN. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, that you bring that up because um, obviously we at ARN, we have a relationship with iHeartMedia in the States. We've been speaking to them recently about how one of their fastest growing um, revenue streams is OTP, um, which you know, doesn't do a lot for the consumer experience in, you know, when, you, when you're consuming content, but it's absolutely, um, you know, got a growth trajectory in the States. So I think that's, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of our assets, it's we're constantly trying to strike that balance between um, how do we deliver the client the cut through that they're looking for, but how we, do we deliver the audience uh, an experience that is going to keep them with us for as long as possible. So. Well, I'm going to keep rolling on because I did promise that people wouldn't have to stand for too long. So I'm actually going to make this the final question and then the rest of it will we'll, we'll carry on the conversation over drinks, I'm sure. Um, I'm going to ask all of you, your, your projections for 2024... 
what should everybody be focusing on? Um, I think um, the work that Karen Nielsenfield is doing is really, really important and it's never been more important for people to look at the interrelationship between media and creative. Um, I think attention metrics and attention effectiveness will be the buzzword of 2024. You know, there was brand versus performance and then there was AI, which is a massive beat up. And then there was, you know, there will be attention effectiveness. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really, really important. And um, from our perspective, it will be um, how retail meter reporting is um, kind of consolidated. You know, you guys would probably know we do a lot of investment of our brand spend into retail media um, and we need to, you know, to your point earlier around how do you justify the spend, I mean, that is what we need. We need access to that reporting to demonstrate return on investment to our stakeholders. Sim, 2024. What, we'll be focusing, what should we be thinking about? What should we be thinking about? Look, I, I think it also falls in the same basket. I think effectiveness, people have got advertisers have less money to spend so it does have to be effective and I think that agency the agency community has got to work together better the creative agency relationship with the media agency you know that really needs to improve um, and I don't think we've quite cracked that yet but that improves and then you know that relationship improves and then you can get your effectiveness measures uh, are more easily accessible so I agree Lauren um, I think it's ESG and understanding the role it plays in the business of media so what's the flow through from your agency's commitments at an ESG level through to the recommendations that they're making for your media plan if you're a marketer um, you know WPP have made a made a commitment to be carbon neutral by 2030 so for them to get there, they're going to have to make some pretty significant decisions around their supply chain. So scrutiny around that, I think, will be big. Henry, um, I'll, I'll ask you to, to make a new point, but also very quickly, are you going to add Scope 3 to your dashboard? Well, I think Scope, scope 3 is actually really interesting. I think it's very difficult to, to figure out figure out like how valid it is. So I'd like to say a good Scope 3 solution first. But um, I think like for the stuff we're focusing on, I think predictions point of view, I think there's a lot of grunt work that's done in marketing generally. Very interested to see how much GPT sucks that up um, because it's becoming really easy to construct stuff. I think there's a huge layer of marketing where people are doing work they don't really like and so there's a high likelihood that that happens. I think the second thing, and I think it's to what Leah said before, is like if more marketers focus less on the ad and more on generating demand, I think that's really where the industry will need to orientate to prove value. And I think that's proving value is kind of going to be more important than ever for most marketers. Please thank our excellent panel, Henry, Lauren, Leah and Simon. Today's podcast was produced with the enthusiastic assistance of Abe's Audio. We'll be back with more soon. Toodle pep. Podcast edit by Abe's Audio.